It's been said that the worst punishment should be reserved for traitors. And being a turncoat is not normally something associated with heroism. And so we think of Judas Iscariot. We think of Benedict Arnold. We think of Brutus. Those names, those names probably elicit some negative thoughts and feelings in your mind. None of them are viewed in a positive light. Nobody names their kid Judas. But is there a sense in which on different levels you and I do this anyway? That we shift our allegiance from one thing to another? I find that my youngest daughter's opinion of me is very much influenced by whether or not I have brownies. Uh, So... uh, my daughter is one, uh, my youngest daughter is one, her name is Clara, and uh, she has a fever today, so they're supposed to be watching on Facebook, well, she's probably not watching, she's probably doing something else, but hi there, bear. Uh, so, um, but the thing is, if any of you know my daughter, she, uh, she is um, very much uh, clingy towards my wife. Um, you may even see her during the Sunday school hour, during... Uh, during church, you may see some of our incredible preschool volunteers uh, walking around with her uh, because she does not like to be away from from my wife. Um, and so if we're in a room together, uh, my daughter Clara will always choose my wife over me. It hurts my feelings every time. Uh, I'm just kidding. No, it really does hurt my feelings every time. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, but, but what changes the game is if, if I have brownies, right? And some of you are like, yeah, <laughs> same. Um, but, but that's really all of us. Like, uh, we're willing to go the direction of something that is more compelling. If something seems more valuable to me or to my family, then I'll drop everything over here and I'll, I'll swear allegiance to the new thing. We, we do this all over the place. Some, some of you, you go from cell phone to cell phone. As soon as one cell phone is released with, with new features, things you didn't even know existed, but now you must have it, it's more valuable to you now. It's more compelling to you, so you'll drop the thing that you had before, and you'll go to the new thing. And we, we do this with all kinds of service, like your your cell phone uh, service provider or, or insurance or, or TV Provider or internet provider, I'm, I'm the guy that as soon as my bill goes up, I'm, I'm calling every company to figure out who, who's offering what, and then I'll call my current company and say, everybody else will give me a better deal, and I don't mind switching. I have zero allegiance uh, to those kind of things. Why? Because I'm looking for something more compelling, a more compelling deal, something that's more valuable to me. And so we, we do this all over the place. We do this with our kids. We, we choose the activities that we feel are most compelling, most valuable to us. Uh, you have learned, and you probably know this, that you can't do everything. You can't participate in every sport, in every activity, and, and have any, any um, reality of life. You have to choose. And so what we do is we choose the thing that is most compelling to us, the thing that we feel is most valuable to our family, and that gains our allegiance. 
And we're willing to switch our allegiance all the time. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's really only a bad thing if you're switching from something that is actually good and true and right and best for you. Like if you're leaving the thing that's best for you and your family, then that's when switching your allegiance is bad. So we've begun a series walking through the book of Joshua. It's called Take the Land. Um, so, so real quick summary, fast forward through it all. God chose Abraham. God says to Abraham, uh, the land that you're standing on, look down, look north, look south, look east, look west. Everything you see will belong to you. Well, not really you. It'll belong to your descendants, your, your grandkids or your great, 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 great grandkids. It'll all belong to them. And so Abraham has a kid, Isaac, and Isaac has a kid named Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons. Um, and Jacob and his 12 sons move to Egypt. And they're in Egypt for a long time, and they multiply into this nation of people. And this nation of people is enslaved in Egypt. And they cry out to the Lord. The Lord hears their cry, and he sends a deliverer, Moses. And Moses, you, you know the story, walks them out of their bondage, out of slavery, uh, through the, the Red Sea on dry ground, through the Red Sea, and, and they wander through the wilderness, and they're headed to the promised land, the land that was promised to their great-great-grandfather, Abraham. They're, they're headed that direction. But Israel, like all of us, struggled with unbelief. And so they get to a certain place, and Moses sends 12 spies into the promised land. Go view the land. Find out what it's like. Come back and give us a report. So these 12 spies go, and they come back. Ten of the spies say, we can't do it. We can't do it. They're too big. They're too strong. They're too mighty for us. We may as well just go back to Egypt. Well, there's two spies, Joshua and Caleb. And they disagree. They say, well, we can do it. But the people of Israel, they side with the ten spies. And they're struck with unbelief. And God punishes their unbelief. He says, well, here's the deal. No one in this generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, can enter the promised land. So we're going to wander around for 40 years until this generation dies off, and then the next generation can take the land. And that's where we are in the text of Joshua uh, that we're going to be looking at. The people of Israel have come to the Jordan River. They're east of the river in order to take the promised land. They've got to cross the, the, the river and they've, they've got to go to battle. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. As we look at the story in Joshua as a church, though, as we come together and we, we look at this, we have come to discover that God has also promised some things to us. It's not necessarily land that he's promised to us, but he has promised us abundant life now. Lives full of joy and hope and peace. It's not a promise of great riches. It's not a promise of a problem-free life. But it's a promise of delivery from anxiety, freedom from the bondage of sin, hope, peace, joy, love, contentment, all things promised to those of us who are in Christ. That's the promised land. 
But so often we walk outside of that reality, and I think you'd agree with me. We find ourselves worrying about tomorrow, or we hunger and we thirst for more money or different relationships or the better job that pays more money or the nicer toys or the bigger house. Or we walk in bitterness or we walk in unforgiveness. We are captive to sin. We are defeated. But that's not what God wants for us. That's not what He has called us to. We are living in the wilderness. We are living east of the Jordan. And God has called us to take the land. He has called us to walk into His promises. And so, that's what we're going to look at today. The the beginning of Israel taking the land. You can go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 2 is where we'll camp out. The book of Joshua begins with a story about Joshua and his interaction with God. God tells Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. You're in charge now, Bubba. That's kind of how that goes. And then he says, and then he says, you, you're going to need some courage and you're going to need some strength. There are battles ahead, but don't worry, I'll be with you. And so now we're ready for Israel to take the land. As I'm reading this story, I'm thinking, okay, I'm ready for the first battle. Let's see what's going to happen. And we get to Joshua chapter 2, and the first story is not about a battle at all. It's actually a story from inside the enemy territory. And it's a story about somebody who's not an Israelite at all. It's a story of... Lies and deceit, treason and oaths, there are spies, and there's an unseemly character. And so we're going to turn to Joshua 2, verse 1, and it begins with a black ops mission. Look with me in verse 1. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So just what we're going to do, we're going to walk through this story pretty pretty quickly. And then at the end of the story, I have three things that I want to share with you. Okay, so we're going to move quickly through the story. I want to help you understand what's taking place in Joshua 2. And and we'll we'll do that. So there, there are some spies sent out. Joshua, this time, they don't send 12 spies, they send two. And they're given the same task as the other 12 spies were given 40 years earlier. Go view the land. Go on a scouting mission. Go collect some intelligence. And so this is the mission, what they're called to. Israel is encamped near a city called Shittim. It's a, that's a word that means acacia grove. So apparently it's a, it's a town or an area that has some, some trees, some acacia and acacia grove. And it's set up kind of in the mountains. And it's uh, in modern-day Jordan, about 20 miles southwest of Amman, is, is where they're encamped. And so what the job for these spies is, is they've got to go down the mountain uh, about eight miles to the Jordan River. When they get to the Jordan River, it's a swollen river this time of year. The snow has melted, and so it's, it's cold, and the river is rushing. And once they get across the river, they have another five-mile hike to Jericho. 
Jericho is a fortified city. And when I say it's fortified, I mean it is fortified. When you study Jericho and you find out what it's like, the walls are 15 feet high and you think, well, that's not, that's not very tall. And it's not because on top of the 15 foot high retaining wall, there's another 20 foot wall that goes on top of that all the way around. And this upper wall is six feet thick. This is Jericho. There are 600 people probably living in Jericho at this time. But there are also some surrounding villages around Jericho. And they know Israel is out there. They know Israel is coming. They're on the lookout. And so what that means is that the people in the villages aren't safe. They come into the walls of Jericho to hide in there. So now there's probably a few thousand people living in Jericho, a city on high alert, waiting for Israel to come. And so these two spies have got to get into the city without being recognized or known And they've got to collect some intelligence. And when they get into the city, they have a plan and they show up at a tavern. Look at uh, verse 1, the second part of it. It says, and they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and they lodged there. So we're introduced to a character named Rahab the prostitute. And that's what she was. That, that's who she was and that's what she was involved in. But as we study a little bit more, we find out that that's not all that, that she probably did in that day. She was also an innkeeper or her house was a tavern or her house was a hostel or some kind of hotel or saloon. It was a place where visitors from out of town would stay. It's, it's a place where people would hang out and maybe keep, keep to themselves, but it was a good place to have a conversation, maybe collect some information. And so their plan is to hide in plain sight. We're going to be just visitors from out of town and we're going to hang out and we're going to see what we can figure out. And they stay the night at this hostel. But as we're going to see in verse 2, their plan to hide in plain sight fails. Verse 2 says this, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, Men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. Now, if you're like me, you're imagining the scene in your mind. And you can imagine the spies uh, find out that they've been discovered. The king of Jericho has figured it out. And they have two options. They can hide or they can fight. Now, there's thousands of people inside Jericho. Fighting is probably not the best option. The king finds out. He sends some men to go get these spies. They, they knock on Rahab's door. They call out. There's some guys from Israel here. They're spies. Send them out. So it's at this point that Rahab has a decision to make. She has two options. She can hide them or she can send them out. Those are her options. She can hide them and lie or she can send them out. She's at a point where she has to decide what's more valuable to her. What option, which option is more compelling and what will she do? We'll look in verse 4 and what we'll see 
is we'll see a shifting of allegiance. Verse 4 says, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So imagine the scene, okay? Here, here's, I'm trying to help you put the pieces together and see how the story goes down. So, so Rahab probably sees the king's men coming from afar. And she takes the spies and she hides them. In a second, we'll see what she says to them. But she hides them on the roof. Then the king's men start knocking on the door. So she comes down, she answers the door, and, and she says, uh, can I help you? And, and they, they say, you've got some spies here. And how does she respond? She says, I, they were here, but I don't know who they are. And I don't know where they're going. You should leave now and, and go catch them. That's her response. And that's, that's what the men do, we, we see in verse 7. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. They believe her story, and they take off down the road. She says, I don't know where they went, and they're like, we know where they went. They're trying to get back to their camp across the Jordan River, so they head down the road to the Jordan River. They close the gate behind them, nobody out. Nobody back in. We're going to get those guys. That, that's the plan. But Rahab says, I don't know. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they went. But you should leave now. And you'll catch them. So they go out. Now, as we're walking through this text together, there's another flashback. She, remember, she sends them up to the roof before she goes to answer the door. Well, when she sends them up to the roof, she, she tells them a little something. Remember, she said, I don't know who they are. I don't know where they have gone. But now we're going to see what she does know. Look, look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to, them, to the men, I know. She says, I know. What, what does she know? I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She says, I, I, I told them I don't know who you are. And I'm, I'm going to tell them that I don't know where you're going. But here's what I do know. I, I know that the land that we're walking on right now belongs to you. The Lord's going to give it to you. And we're all afraid. Well, why are they afraid? Verse 10 tells us, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. So she says, we've, we've heard what the Lord has done. She says, we heard about how you crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and we heard what you did to those two Amorite kings, how you totally destroyed them. We heard those stories, and, and that's really, those are the bookend stories of the Exodus. The first thing that happened and the last thing that happened. So really what she's saying is, we've heard about the Exodus, and what we know is that the Lord was, was acted a certain way towards you in the past, and we know that He's going to do it again, and so we're terrified of what's about to happen. 
And then she says an incredible thing. Remember who Rahab is. She's not an Israelite. She has her allegiance to the king of Jericho. She worships other gods. She really knows nothing other than what God has done in the past. And she shifts her allegiance. Listen to this statement at the end of verse 11. She says, For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She uses the name Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh. She says, Yahweh, the God you worship, He is God. In fact, what she says is there is nowhere where she is not God. Where he is not God, including Jericho. Your God is God everywhere. And so now what she's going to do is she's going to shoot her shot, right? This is her chance. This is her chance. Like she's saying, okay, I have these guys here. This is my chance. Maybe I can live through this. And so in verse 12, she says, now then, please. Swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. That's her, that's her chance. She says, as I have dealt kindly with you, will you please deal kindly with me and save me and my family? Now, this, this word kindly, I, I love this word. It's a word that's hard to, to translate from Hebrew into English because it doesn't mean one thing. It doesn't have like a word-to-word uh, correspondence. So it's translated kindly here, and that's, that's a fine. Kindness is a good way to translate it, but it also means so much more than that. Yeah, in your Bible and some other places where this word is used, you might find something like loving kindness. Or you might find steadfast love. Or loyalty, or graciousness, or faithfulness, or goodness, or kindness, or compassion. That's this word. She, so what she's saying is, I have shown you love. I've, I've shown you loyalty, and goodness, and kindness, and compassion. I've preserved your life. Now will you extend the same thing to me? Will you be gracious to me? Will you be loyal to me? Will you be faithful to me? And their response, verse 14, the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. They say our lives for yours, our lives for yours. We, we will make sure that you and your family will be preserved in the battle, even if it costs us our very lives. And so now, verse 15, now we're going to get the escape. Verse 15, then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And what, what the scripture is trying to show us is that her house was built in such a way that the back wall of her house was the city wall. So she has a window at her house. Well, that window is outside the city wall. Does that make sense? So, so she's in the city wall in that way. And she says to them, before she lets them out the window, she says to them, verse 16, Go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. 
what, what she's telling them is we, we see in some ancient Near Eastern history um, that that was kind of the way that they went about like a search party. Um, we'll spend three days looking for you. If we can't find you after three days, you're lost. So that's why she says three days. Go hide for three days. I know they'll look for you for three days. They'll never find you. Then they'll come back and then you can go to the river, cross the river and go back to your camp. So then in verse 17, the, the men have, have some stipulations. Here's the deal. We, we will preserve you. We will save you. But here, here's the way that it's going to work. She's, uh, they're going to give her three things. They say, number one, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. So that's number one. Take this scarlet cord, tie it in the window. That way we'll be able to identify which room you're in, which, which room needs to ha- have alive people in it. Uh, number two, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. So number two, uh, first of all, tie the scarlet cord in the window. Number two, anybody who wants to be saved has to be in this room. Because if they're not in your house, if they're outside, they're fair game and it's not our problem. And we'll make sure nobody no, nobody attacks you if you're in that house. That's number two. And the third thing, um, part of the deal, is verse 20. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. In other words... They climb out the window, and then she goes and tells everyone, hey, the spies were here, go get them. Well, then the spies get captured and killed, and then the people of Israel have no idea that a deal has been made. Um, and, and Rahab and her family are going to die. So she's got to keep quiet. Uh, she's got to kind of keep this to herself. And her response in verse 21 is this. According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now that's an exciting story. And it's an incredible uh, piece of scripture. Um, and we anxiously await how the battle's going to go down. And, and you've got to wait like four more chapters for the battle to go down. Um, but it's an incredible thing. But as we look at it as a church together, what I see is I see a, a few things that really apply to us. See, the promised land is only for children of the promise. If you want to take the land, you have to have your allegiance in the right place. And I wonder this, uh, this morning if there's anybody who needs to shift their allegiance. As we turn our minds to, to allegiance to Jesus and shifting our uh, allegiance to Jesus completely, there are three things that I see in this text that stand out. Number one. Switching allegiance to Jesus demands great risk. It demands great risk. Rahab risked her life to hide the spies. She was committing high treason. In fact, there's an ancient Near Eastern law from about this similar time period. And it says this, if scoundrels plot together in an innkeeper's house and she does not seize them and bring them to the palace, that innkeeper shall be put to death. So the price to be paid for her crime was death. 
But she decided that the risk was worth it. She found that God was more compelling, that he was more valuable to her and to her family than what Jericho had to offer. Listen, in the same way, Jesus demands great risk of us. He says, if you would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Jesus says, anybody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. See, following Jesus, making him king, giving him your allegiance demands great risk. You have to be all in. It demands everything. You can't say to Jesus, I'll follow you, but I'm going to hold back my time. That's for me. Or I'm going to hold back my money or my decision making or my kids. Now, following after Jesus means you risk it all. You give it all. But Jesus says that it's worth it. He says the kingdom of heaven is like, it's kind of like a man who was walking through a field and he stumbles upon a treasure and he views that treasure as so compelling and as so valuable that he goes back and he sells everything that he has. Takes the money, buys the field. He doesn't want the field, he wants that treasure. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It says that he does it joyfully, in his joy. He sells everything else so that he can acquire that treasure. When we see who God is and we recognize the treasure that is Jesus, we joyfully risk everything we have, even our very lives, in order to follow him. No amount of money or popularity or success or prominence or college scholarship or Comfort is worth the value in knowing Christ Jesus as my Savior and my King. Turning over your allegiance to Jesus demands great risk. But it's worth it. Number two. Switching allegiance to Jesus requires proof. It requires proof. It wasn't enough for Rahab to just tell them that she was switching sides. It wasn't enough for her to even say, "Um, your God is God everywhere and I want to follow him. That wasn't enough. See, words are only as good as the actions they produce. And so Rahab does two things that proves her allegiance to Israel's God. Number one, she hides the spies. The fact that she hid the spies meant that her words weren't just words, but she really meant them. The second thing she did is she tied the scarlet cord outside of her window. Now, it wasn't the the scarlet cord that saved her. It's not as if that was some, like, magic thing that saved her. It was simply evidence that she really did believe Israel was going to do what they said they were going to do. In the same way for us. Faith without works is dead. 
James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter, and in it he says something like this. You, you can probably show me your faith with the words that you use, but I'll show you my faith by the things I do. Now, we agree with the statement from the Reformation that we are saved by faith alone. There's no amount of keeping a list of rules that's going to put us into a right standing with God. That's not how this thing works. We are saved by faith alone. But we also agree with the great reformer Martin Luther who said, yeah, we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. So James tells us faith without works is dead. How do we know Rahab really believed God's promise? How do we know? She hid the spies. She tied the cord outside her window. So here's my question for you. How do you know that you really believe God's promise? How do you know that your faith really is in Jesus? How do you know? Do your actions follow your words? What are the good works that are the result of your saving faith? Another way to ask that question, in what ways, what specific ways do you love God? What tangible ways do you love God? What tangible ways do you love other people? Those things are your scarlet cord. Those things are your hiding of the spies. See, you, you can say you love God all you want, but if your actions don't show it, the scriptures say, the scriptures say, you are a liar. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I say? What, what he's saying there is, if you're not going to do what I say, then don't call me Lord, Lord. But if you're going to call me Lord then do what I say. And so often we, we are, are real, real good about kind of ignoring some things that Jesus says because we don't want to. We don't want to give him our full allegiance. We, we kind of mark off the things that we really don't want to do or that are difficult. We, we kind of ignore those and, and Jesus won't let us. That, that's not an option. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Take an inventory of your time or your credit card statement, your conversations, your priorities. Take an inventory of where your feet are most of the time. Would those things say that your allegiance belongs to Jesus or something else? Now, the point isn't perfection, it's progress. But are you, are you progressing? Do you have a hunger to be there? Are you pressing in? Now remember, we aren't saved by keeping a list of rules. Don't hear that. We're saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But if we truly belong to Jesus, if we really find Him most compelling and most valuable, then our actions will begin to fall in line with what He says. Allegiance to Jesus requires proof. Number three, allegiance to Jesus provokes hope. It provokes hope. 
When we switch our allegiance to Jesus, hope springs forth. Rahab hung the scarlet cord from her window. But how long did she have to wait before Israel showed up to fight? Days? Weeks? Months? How long did she have to wait? And you can imagine the talk of the town has kind of shifted now because now there have been spies. There's a rumor of spies in town. And so the talk of the town is we're all going to die. We've seen what these people have done, and now they're after us. There were spies in our city. They got away. We are in big trouble. We're going to die. And Rahab might be tempted to fear. She might be tempted to worry, but what does she do? She turns her eyes to her window. And right outside her window, she's got a scarlet cord hanging right there. And she can say, I I have no reason to fear. I have hope. I've got this scarlet cord. The Hebrew word for cord here in Joshua 2 is used 34 times in the Bible. It's used 34 times. And of those 34 times, two times, it's translated as cord. Both of those times are here in Joshua 2. So every other time, 32 more times, it's used outside of Joshua 2, and it's not translated as cord. Do you want to know what that is? What the word is that it's translated? It's, it's the word hope. It's a word picture. Like I'm hanging on by this rope, you know, hope. Do you see it though? Rahab is saved by scarlet hope. She's saved by scarlet hope. This morning, today, we are still saved by scarlet hope. We have been separated from God because of our sin, because our allegiance goes to other things. We value other things. We choose what we want. We choose our hopes and our dreams. We choose our comfort. We choose money. We choose what everybody else thinks or what everybody else is doing. So that must be right for me. We choose that. Our allegiance isn't given to Jesus. And sin separates us. But God loved us so much. He made a way for us to return. He sent His Son, Jesus who lived a perfect life, not sinning once. He gave his life. He poured out his blood, his, his scarlet blood. And he gave his life. God makes this offer to us. Place your faith in Jesus. Give him your allegiance. Your complete allegiance. And he will forgive you of your sin. You'll be his. And you can enter the land of hope and peace and joy. Not problem free. Not worry free but tools to take on that anxiety. And you'll know the love of God and you'll know forgiveness and you'll live victoriously. But, I mean, I, I know some of you and, and I look out there and I, I know what some of you are walking through. And, and we, could, we could just have a conversation right now, just us here in this room and everybody else who's watching on Facebook Live. Uh, life gets hard. Just like the people of Jericho start talking. You start hearing, you start hearing the voice. 
when we, we fail or, or people around us fail or circumstances threaten to undo us. And in the event that our hope seems lost, what are we supposed to do? We look to the cross. We look to scarlet hope. I know that God is faithful. He was faithful in the past, and I know that He'll be faithful again. God is faithful, and we know this. We know that He's faithful just from Joshua 2. We know that He's faithful. Um, in a few weeks, we're going to look at the fall of Jericho, so I won't, I won't steal that sermon. But as many of you know, Israel attacks Jericho in a strange way. The walls come a-tumbling down. Uh, the big walls, the 15-foot and 20-foot walls, come tumbling down, and, and they're decimated, right? The walls are decimated. Well, all except uh, one part of the wall. There's the north side of the wall. That Actually, we have a picture of what archaeologists discovered. Um, if you're like me, you're like, oh, that looks like a rock to me. Um, but what that is, that's, that's, that's a picture of God's faithfulness. Because there's a part of the wall that still stands with some little houses kind of built into the wall. With You know, the, the back side of that house is actually the wall of the city. So you could probably say that it was built in the city wall. And this north part of the wall is actually closest to some hills where if somebody wanted to go hide or something for a few days, they could probably get there quicker if it was on the north side of the city. You see, Rahab's house still stands. God is faithful. He was faithful to her and he'll be faithful again. She didn't know it. Rahab didn't know it. But God sent a black ops mission to go get her. And I wonder this morning if God is sending a black ops mission to get somebody in this room. Is there somebody in here that God is coming after? God was not just faithful to Rahab. God was overwhelmingly and abundantly good to her. Listen to Rahab's story. She was received into the people of Israel. She was, after this battle goes down and she's saved, she's brought into the people of Israel and she, she uh, marries a, a man of Israel. They have a son and they name him Boaz. Boaz grows up and he marries a lady named Ruth. By the way, she's not from Israel. Well, they have a son... And they name him Obed. And Obed grows up, gets married, has a son, names him Jesse. Jesse grows up, has a son, names him David. King David. King David. And his, and, and his royal blood flows through the rest of the kings of Judah. His royal blood flows through the people of Judah who are in exile. For 70 years, and then they come back. His royal blood flows through these people of Judah. Even on a day, one day, in Bethlehem when a baby was born. The king, the God of the universe, took on flesh and walked among us. And he is the great, 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 great grandson of Rahab. The blood of Rahab flows through our Savior. She has a place of honor in the Scriptures. Rahab the prostitute. She's in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. Look how good God is to Rahab. 
He's so faithful. He's so good. It was true in the past and it's true now. It's true for us. He was faithful and he'll be faithful. He was good and he will be good. And Paul says that if, if God gave us his son, will he not freely give us all things? And Paul says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? No hardship, no difficulty, no sin, not even death can separate us from his love. Nothing. This God is infinitely compelling. This God is supremely valuable. He is completely worth the risk. So what I have been praying for all morning is that you're hearing these words that I'm saying, but what I'm asking God to do is for in your heart that he would, he would help you to cast all of your hope on him. That you would give him all of your faith, that you would give him all of your allegiance, that you would live in Jericho, but not be of Jericho. And so we're, we're going to respond this morning. I'm going to pray. The prayer team and elders will come forward. And there's some, I know there is somebody in this room whose allegiance is not with Jesus. But you sense this stirring in your heart. And you want to give your allegiance to Jesus. I'm asking you, come talk to somebody up here. Not because it's a magic thing to do to come forward. But because there's somebody up here who will answer your questions and help you. Please, give your allegiance to Jesus. Some of you gave your allegiance to Jesus, but you really, really love to be a part of Jericho. Time to surrender this morning.